0: Thank you so much Pastor Jeff for leading us in our service and thank you all for coming to join us on our services on site and online. It's always good to listen to God's word because that's the only hope we have in this world while we wait for the glorious return of Jesus. We want to begin our time today by exploring the theme and the big idea of crying. What makes us cry in life? And so here are some lighter reasons or lighter moments of why especially children cry. I just got this from the net. And here's a picture of a girl who melts down and she meets Barack Obama. <laughs> and he's at a total loss. <laughs> why is <she's> crying? <laughs> and uh, things like that happen when you have young children or grandchildren. You see very different responses. And then what else makes children cry? And for this particular one, when a parent told her, that Darth Vader was the bad, bad guy, sorry, not bad bye, was the bad guy. <laughs> and it was a total shock to her system that Darth Vader could be the bad guy. And this one really caught my heart. And she started to break down when mummy told her she cannot marry daddy or her brother. <laughs> because when you're young, your father is your hero and your brother is a good friend <laughs> until you grew up. And so there are all different reasons why children might cry. But we think of the heavier side of life. We cry when we lose someone or something precious in life. And you ask that question, how long will we remember? And how long will we mourn? And how long will we cry? Those who are amongst us here as members, regulars of ARPC, would know that at one time, we had part, as part of our Ministry Apprentice Program, a wonderful sister in Christ called Eileen. But very sadly, her life was, from a human's perspective, cut short. And all she came down with was seemed to be a flu, but it turned out to be an aneurysm. And so she passed on to glory in the prime of her life. Ever so often, her parents would come down and we had become their spiritual family. I remember once I asked Eileen's father, we we all respectfully call Mr Chin, as to how often he remembered Eileen and he said without blinking every day. Every day. So why do we cry? When do we cry? How long do we cry? Is a question you and me would need to answer some point in life. When we lose something or we lose someone who is precious to us. This portion of Luke's Gospel begins actually with this, that controls the whole story, the whole narrative of God's story with His people, of God's story with you and me. And why do you think this is the controlling thought? Because it has to do with Jesus. So in Luke 19, verse 41, and when He drew near, drew near to Jerusalem, The city of God, and he saw the city, he wept over the city, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The first thing to explore as we connect up the story, you heard a message on this, you read this, you discussed this, if you are here with us in our Bible study groups, discipleship groups, you would have studied this. Is to understand the word wept, what it means in Jesus' life, and the gravity of that. Wept is full sobbing or weeping. When you find someone in this moment of grief and they are shaking, they are this is Jesus. He is in full sobbing mode over what? Over who? Over Jerusalem. The city of God, over whom all the inhabitants who are supposed to be the people of God, led by the leaders of God. No other city has God so associated with it other than Jerusalem. And so maybe like a spiritual parent, like a parent watching the slow spiritual and moral death of a child. How many of you have children? How many of you have grown up uh, teenage kids? One of the most joyful things in life is to see your children grow up to know God themselves and have a living, dynamic relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in their life, evidenced by their love for God's Word, their love for prayer, their love for sharing the Gospel, their love to put away sinfulness and their love to put on godliness. But side by side with that, the polar opposite of that is the sadness that will pierce your heart when you see a child whom you were blessed with, drift away from God after every single effort between you and your spouse was to love them, pray for them, raise, raise them. I remember the conversation I had when I went to visit my alma mater, more college in Sydney, Australia. I there I bumped into my lecturer. And it's almost 30 years since I left college, he's still there. The longevity and the fidelity. So we caught up heart to heart. He asked me how I was how my marriage was, how my children were. And I asked him in return, how he was, how his wife was, whom we knew because she was also the college's doctor, and how his children. And he says, children, we give the three of them, if not wrong, the same love, the same prayers, the same dedication. Two turn out well, one turn out badly. And I just don't have the answer to that. Sometimes it's not our parenting. It's not our sincerity, our parenting, the authenticity, of our parenting. Sometimes in the sovereignty of God, oftentimes, each of us, all the time, have to be held to accountability for our own decisions. So there may be parents here going through that. And you may have wept many times over your children. Here is our Lord Jesus Christ weeping over God's city and God's people. And why did Jesus weep over Jerusalem is very important. Because he, as God's Messiah, has now finally entered God's city. You know, he was born, he's a small town boy, and his ministry begins publicly in Galilee. And for most of his three years, and three and a half years, was spent in Galilee. In Luke's Gospel, the turning point is Luke 9.51 where it says Jesus set his heart and his mind on going to Jerusalem because it is at Jerusalem where the full revelation of Jesus as a person and the full revelation of Jesus' mission sent by God will be revealed and indeed be opposed and rejected. To capture the essence of this, the substance, the gravity of this is that God's city of peace, Jerusalem, Salam is peace. Jerusalem, God's city of peace, will reject God's final offer of peace through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what will it reveal of Israel? What will it reveal of her leaders and her people? Her stubborn, obstinate, persistent spiritual blindness to God and ultimately... Blindness to God's Son. You and I might say in day-to-day conversation, if only God spoke to me, if only God appeared to me, I would listen. Please do not buy into that very loose thinking. God spoke many times to Israel. God revealed Himself many times to Israel. But every time God spoke, Israel rejected Him. And if that is true of Israel's history, it will be true of your history. You and I are bad listeners after the fall in Genesis 3. We are poor listeners, especially to God, to truth, and the offer of life. So you and me, bad listeners, and we are stubborn, persistent, obstinate with our spiritual blindness, thinking that you and me can live life without God, without any consequences. And so the original purpose of the temple And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And so we need to understand this. Understand what? The original context that Jesus was in. What was the spiritual, moral condition, heartbeat of Jerusalem and the people there? This is it it was most likely referring to what was happening in the court of the Gentiles. And the outer court of the Gentiles, Right? it was legitimate to have money changes because people coming in, Jews coming in from the diaspora who didn't live in the city of Jerusalem, they would come in with their Roman currency, they would come in with all sorts of different foreign currency, but they needed to change it to the temple currency to pay the temple tax to enter the temple to worship. So there was legitimate money changes to do that. There were also legitimate vendors selling all things that they needed for sacrifices. Sacrifices symbolising that here we are, chosen people but unholy people, chosen people but unholy people. And for us to have a continuing relationship with the Holy God, there has to be a sacrificial system And the sacrificial system consisted of animals, of wine and oil and salt and doves, for those who could not afford the more expensive sacrifices. Jesus was not against the legit money changes or sacrifices per se. He was against the illegitimate collusion between the temple leaders and the vendors who were cheating and profiting and charging more for the temple tax and charging the people more. And instead of being leaders in the worship of God, they became leaders in corrupting the worship of God, beggaring the very people of God. Because what is at the heart of worship? Israel learned that at the heart of worshipping God was very simply, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and love your neighbour as expression of loving the true and the living God. In the very temple where God's holy presence was to be met by the holy holy approach of God's people to the sacrificial system, instead of loving God expressed in loving neighbour, they paupered and beggared neighbour through the collusion and cheating. You couldn't get more wrong. If something was corrupt, right, This shouldn't be the thing that would be corrupted in Israel. But Israel was corrupted to the core in its temple system. And to really understand the movement from being the original house of prayer to a den of robbers, Jesus, his mind goes back to the Old Testament. What was God's original purpose for this? These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings and the sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer. For this one, there's a glimpse that the original purpose and eternal purpose for the house of God, for the temple of God, was not simply for one nation, but for all nations. Here is the idealised picture of temple. Here is the ideal picture of the Holy God approached by his people and an approach with prayerfulness. And then Jeremiah, in Jeremiah's prophecy, this was perhaps the most scathing, the most condemning of his pronouncements. Behold, this is what you now trust. Let me ask you, what is it you trust? Do you trust in our banking system? Do you trust in Bitcoin? Just checking. Do you trust in Tesla? I understand the shares have gone up 1,900 times or something astronomical like that. Behold your trust. You trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal? Will you murder? Will you commit adultery? Will you swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house? You do all that idolatry out there You do all that spiritual adultery out there and then you come to God's house and you glibly, lightly, loosely think we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations, this two-timing, this two-timing, this double-minded worship of God has this house which is called by my name, Yahweh's name, the holy God, the true and living God's name become a den of rubbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it. Nobody else can see your heart. But do you think I'm a God of hands, of visible hands? I'm a God who searches invisible hearts. I myself have seen it. This two timing in your hearts, declares Yahweh. And so, the temple was no longer for the worship of God. And by the time Jesus approached the temple... It was now for the idolatry and idolatry of money. And led by the leaders, they were lovers of money, not lovers of God. So that is the first warning that Jesus enters Jerusalem and far from getting a welcome of the Messiah, of God's Messiah, He is going to get an opposite response. And He was teaching daily in the temple. Can you see that? Every day he would go to the temple. At night he would go to the Mount of Olives and he walks that distance and as we preach this and teach this, we will know the reason why he did that. The chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men of the people, a shortcut a, short, a cut way of referring to religious leaders, they were all in cahoots and they were seeking to destroy him But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on Jesus' words. This is the first mention of an assassination plot against Jesus. Or it was recorded very early on that they started to hate him. But you know, when does hatred turn into assassination? I'm sure you have been tempted to hate some people. I'm sure you have been the receiving end of hatred, but I want to ask you, have you been at the receiving end of assassination plots? They hated him so much, they plotted to destroy him. And this was plotted by God's leaders to kill God's Messiah, offering God's peace. And friends, there is a very important spiritual insight here, a challenge to all of us notice for the religious leaders it's not the fear of God that stops them sinning in their hearts they have this thing in their heart against Jesus they don't ever discern it they don't ever confess it they don't ever repent of it they are religious leaders with no sense of sin in their life no sense that the holiness of God demands but it's the fear of men that stops them from sinning with their hands I just want to just pause here for us to really get the gravity of this. For you and me to stop sinning because God has put the finger on your heart about some sin, anger, lust, envy, unforgiveness, discontentment, whatever is the sin is one thing to repent because of the fear of God that if I carried on with this sin with this sin of worry, with this sin of unforgiveness, with the sin of lust, I could be grieving God. So what makes us stop sinning? The fear of God, the fear of grieving God internally in our hearts, is that what's stopping Joe from sinning, Jeff from sinning, Pastor Jeff, Pastor Joe and Pastor Chris from sinning? Or is it what stops you from sinning is You're still raging in your heart. I'm still raging in my heart. But it's the fear of being exposed externally. If our ultimate reason for stopping sin is the fear of being found out and exposed, that is the wrong reason, friends. And we are a million miles away from pleasing God. Ponder that now before I move on. because it's very easy to listen to the Word of God and not hear the voice of God speak to you. Unless you and me are on the path of stopping sin, because this very sin in thought and word and deed grieves God and incurs His anger, His rightful wrath against me, you and me will never repent of sin. You will go on being a serial sinner a serial repeater of the same sin. You did sin, pornography sin at 18 years old. You don't repent of this. You only are so so adamant about not being found out on your gadget and your phone, and so you have three phones, as now they found out that Rabbi Zechariah has multiple phones. I've always preached about this. The way to cure this is not to have multiple phones and multiple data plans. It's the fear of God then at 60 or 70 years old, you'll be repeating the same sin. It's a guarantee If the love of God and the fear of God is not our true motive for dealing with sin, but being exposed and found out. Sooner or later, we will be found out. And even though we escape the eyes of men in this world, you will not escape the eyes of God on the judgment day. And he began to tell them this parable. This portion is huge, but I've, tried, I've linked it to why Jesus wept. The plot against him, because he's come to expose their sin. And now he tells the parable of the vineyard that connects all the different episodes in chapter 20 together. He began to tell the parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants, went into another country for a long time. So the main thing to note, the main characters in the situation, vineyard vineyard owner, tenants, and he's away for a long time. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Each one of the three servants is worthy of explanation. So we get the fidelity and gravity of this parable that will unfold the different responses to Jesus as Messiah entering God's city. The first servant, he's beaten. And I understand the Greek word "dero" can mean striking the face or striking the whole body. So much so that you become a pup. So striking the faces anyone slapped you? My parents never did. They were good parents. But I was slapped by my principal in sect 1. How? I'll tell you if you buy me coffee. <laughs> I'll never forget that, that sting. And he was in the assembly. And Mona, who was in the same school, whoa, what happened? because I'm known as a good boy. What happened? Buy me the coffee, I'll tell you the story. <laughs> striking the face, you'll never forget that. Either you strike somebody or somebody strikes you. But it was striking the whole body. So you know I grew up in small town Malaysia. Near my home, just beside my home, right, there is a toddy shop, T-O-D-D-Y. It's sold cheap um, alcohol. Made Toddy is alcohol made from coconut juice. I'm mainly patronised by Indians. One day, I was studying at the the courtyard at the back of my shop house, and looked down, there was a skirmish. And there were one or two Malay soldiers from the battalion nearby, and they had gone to drink. A skirmish broke out. I think he got beaten. And not too long after that, I don't know, half an hour, an hour after that, I was still studying up there. It was evening time. He came back with a whole group of soldiers. And this time, at the back of the house, because it was just wood, right? We had wood, we didn't have any gas, one of them picked up a huge piece of wood and smash it against the head of one of, of the Indians. The reason I can tell that story to you, I can still hear the crunch of bone. You ever seen a fight? It's not like Jackie Chan, you know?. No repercussions. In real life, You whack somebody with a piece of wood, you hear, you hear the crushed bones. So to this first servant, yes, it's a parable. It's a metaphor, it's figurative. But Jesus was telling this to drive home a point. The second servant, they beat him and then added to the beating. You know, you could get a beating but not be humiliated. Just a beating, but every beating is humiliating. Then the third servant comes, he's wounded and cast out. Literally, the language is left to die. You get beaten and then after the soldiers left, all the Indians gathered around and just helped who got beaten. That's fine. You get help. But you are beaten and then you are left to die. That's a totally different story. But that's not the worst. So with the wicked tenants, there's the worsening rejection and the worsening abuse. And finally God sends his beloved son, If you pick up the story only from Luke 19, Beloved Son might mean nothing to you. You want to turn to someone and say, This is my beloved wife? Make sure she's beloved. This is my beloved husband. This is my beloved son. The the person who spoke and gave Jesus the title Beloved Son was God. Recorded in Luke 3.22, at his baptism, when he came out of the waters, this is my beloved son. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And that is a conflation of two very important passages from the Old Testament. Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, the suffering servant. Listen to everything my son says. And then the complete depravity of the tenants, which here was Israel, represented by Israel's leaders. Their complete depravity was, they thought and they concluded, kill the son and you will inherit the vineyard. What made them make that conclusion except the warpness of their mind? You could kill the son, but what guarantee you're going to inherit the vineyard? Unless you think, when we sin, God the vineyard owner, Israel's past history of rejecting God's prophets was first servant, second servant, third servant. But then Israel's long history of rejecting God and his prophets, speaking God's word, come back to me, come back to me, I'm a holy God, be my holy people, is now playing out in the present story of God's Son coming to them. And so a window not just to the wickedness of the tenants, a window not just to the wickedness of the tenants, but God, his great love, and his great love manifested and expressed in his long-suffering. Great love and long-suffering always go together. That's the recipe I want to say, by the way, for all, long, for all marriages, the longevity of marriages and the fidelity of families. And with sin expressed in Israel's life, the sin of idolatry, the sin of spiritual adultery. So we have killed off every prophet they sin. What can God do about it now? We have now killed off his son. What can he do about it now? He was impotent about the servant's fate, prophet after prophet, and Jesus comes to the final prophet. What on earth can he do about the tenants' rebellion which will now kill off the final prophet, the son? Don't ever embark on that loose thinking. Just because God has allowed sin to carry on doesn't mean he's impotent or neutral about our rebellion against him. And the death of the son is not the last word. Notice how the parable ends. The owner will come. The death of the son is not the last word. The owner will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So kill son, owner comes, father comes, judgment for Israel, gospel to others. Which tells you by the time Jesus turn up, not all Israel are Israel. There will be remnant Israel and faithful Israel. And from Luke chapter 1, those who are invited to take part in God's salvation plan, the final leg of his salvation plan, are not those in Jerusalem. Are the poor and the faithful remnant Jews. Like who? Like Elizabeth. Like Mary. Like Joseph, people you would not include in your grand plan of salvation, the despised people of Israel are really the apple of God's heart. Could they be the first others? And finally, the others would have Gentiles on view because Israel, you have failed God in this. The background to this parable is Isaiah chapter 5. And you read Isaiah chapter 5. There's a very important word in there It's about, all about God, the vineyard owner Who loves his people Whatever you do not know about Christianity I want to say to you, banish all thought That Christianity is a religion It is not Banish all thought that the gospel is about do's and don'ts Christianity and the gospel Is the ultimate love story of the true and living God With you and me And apart from God loving you to the point of sending his beloved son to be killed firstly by his people in collusion with the gentiles you and me have no hope so this is his love story the parable of the vineyard the parable of God loving his people but he looked directly in them and said what then is this that is written The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Psalm 118 is on view. Cornerstone. Most of us live in public housing. Very few of us build our own houses. If you ever build your own house, the first stone that you gather is called the cornerstone. I found that cornerstone. You measure up all the measurements of your house and you build with the solidness of that cornerstone. You choose the best stone to be the cornerstone. It's actually an allusion, firstly to Israel historically, and then finally to Jesus, that God's way of saving the world will be very, very unthinkable and people will dismiss. And they will dismiss Jesus and the cross But if you dismiss Jesus and the cross, whether the language is you stumble over this cornerstone or this cornerstone falls on you, the repercussions of rejecting Jesus are serious. Whether you stumble over Jesus, you dismiss him, or this stone crushes you, there are repercussions to rejecting Jesus in your life and my life. And so lesson... As we draw time to a close. For Israel, the nation, from recipients of the greatest offer of peace, now they are rejecters of God's greatest offer of peace. Jerusalem, the city of peace, will reject God's offer of peace in Jesus Christ, the peacemaker. And because they reject God's offer of peace in the cross of Jesus, they will no longer be the recipients of peace. They will firstly be the witnesses and then the recipients of God's judgment. And it began in AD 70 where unthinkably the Romans came, surrounded surrounded Jerusalem and burnt it to the ground. Something that the Jews never thought would happen to God's invincible city and God's invincible temple what we consider humanly invincible is but rubbish in God's eyes when we make it to be our works righteousness. So Jesus whips specifically about the human pride of his people, about the spiritual blindness of his people, about their hardness of heart, about their two-timing nominal worship. And as they embark on more pride, Less on God, spiritual blindness, don't need to see God, hardness of heart. Which of this could Jesus be threatening in you and me? You read this whole account from Luke 18 onwards, right? It's all about spiritual blindness. Before Jesus enters into Jerusalem, there is a blind man. But the blind man calls out, Oh, son of David, you can heal me. And Jesus says to the blind man, I will heal you. A blind man sees who he is. But the physically sighted, beginning with the religious leaders, are all spiritually blind. We say again and again, you and I are spiritually sighted but spiritually blind. You couldn't get a greater tragedy at that. Is that you? Is that me? And so, by God's grace, we were so honoured to be invited to host outings for the guest workers, and nine Christmas celebrations for them. I shared this in Bishan last week, but because we preached to a different audience, we didn't put up the Bishan sermon, you may not have heard this. If you have, just fall asleep. I mean, just be persevering and listen to this. So batches and batches of them came, depending on how many people were allowed to come and join us. Because we are in phase three of COVID-19, we can now go out. To schools and workplaces. Guess what? Our guest workers are still in phase one. The only place they are allowed to go out is tightly controlled to their workplaces and back. The moment they step out of their dormitories, they have broken the law. And so pray for them. And we're so honored. So part of their two, three hours that we spent here, right, was uh, giving playing games with them, which they were very good at doing. Showed the intelligence of this. Uh, men that come to work for us and then help build our nation then we got them to do drawings and then to write a note and here is a note from one of the guest workers of what they felt about this Christmas outing that we gave to them and this is verbatim that's why the English is broken right? broken from our per- perspective but from their perspective if they know 20 English words 30 English words how many Tamil words do you know? How many Bangladeshi words do you know? Don't ask me how many men-written characters I know. Even my name. I struggle. For them to write, first, thankful, double L. All, I am really happy the moment. I happily wish you Merry Christmas. It's not bad, right? You know what he's saying? He's just so happy that for the first time in Singapore, I told you once, after one of those outings, he sent me a message, right? Happiest day of my life, best day of my life in Singapore, sir. We all have to send back and say, don't call me sir, don't call me madam. Because there are always men and women under instruction. The joy of being loved, the joy of being included, the joy of not being told what to do all the time, the dignity of being treated as a fellow human being. That's the joy of salvation, that Jesus has come. And Zacchaeus experienced this. He was an outsider to the kingdom. He was ostracized by his people. But Jesus says, I will visit your house, Zacchaeus. Come down from that tree. Salvation has come to your household. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And so, the joy of being included. But there is the the terror and the tyranny of rejecting God. But before we arrive there, so a few weeks ago remember I preached on Colossians 4 to end our series Back to Basics, Back to Jesus and then in in our children's church classes they came up with this, I said we should be prayerful ambassadors, watchful ambassadors, and then thankful ambassadors, and then gracious ambassadors and then salty ambassadors and they wrote this and filled this up. What does this mean for their life? So let me just read some of those things, right? I have it here in bigger font, you can't see it and it just says, prayerful ambassador, you know what this, this particular boy did, he listed down all the, the people he should be praying for. A whole list of people he should be praying for. And then watchful ambassador, number two, from the left-hand side, in the red. Okay, um, Watchful ambassador. What, what's spiritual watchfulness? I can pray to God, read the Bible, so that I know God's word and will. Thankful ambassador. Life can be... Oh, thankful for what? Thankful for life. Thankful, and he says, for able body. Thankful for a home, thankful for a family, thankful for a brain, (laughs) thankful for a school, etc. (laughs) So he's learning to be thankful. Then gracious ambassador, control my temper and not retaliate when I'm wrong. You know, even our primary school kids can be wrong in school, right? And then salty ambassador, seasoned with salt conversations with outsiders, I can not say bad words. I can try to behave well. I can pray. I can invite my friends to church. Only Pastor Jeff said, a. He <laughs> tells you at this moment, right? 40 minutes later, only he is awake. <laughs> back to basics, back to Jesus. We are now in the period called Lent, hence God's invitation for us to meditate deeply on the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. And Jesus is beautiful and majestic simply because of His humility. His humility crucifies our pride of life. Our pride of life sends us to the grave, and eternity without God. From new identity must come new habits. And what new habits? New habits of appreciating God's love. New habits of living by grace, not by human flesh and wisdom. New habits of prayer instead of planning. New habits of life. New habits of loving each other, appreciating each other. Not good enough to say, we are a Protestant church, my new identity in Christ, but the way I think, the way I speak, the way I feel, the way I act, is totally unchanged. And just from that boy writing those things, if our children's church are getting our children to be serious about Christ, what about us in adult church? It's not something that we teach our children alone. This is Lent. And Lent is for us to Lent is for us to cry. I gave this acronym to you and will keep giving it to you. To confess that, oh help me, God, I'm spiritually blind. Oh, help me God, I'm hardening my heart. Oh, help me, God. We had a new member service last week. And the people come forward to give their uh, testimonies, and one of them came up and said, "I was backsliding, drifting away from God. And as he said that, his voice cracked. "I don't need to know what skeletons he has in his cupboard. He doesn't need to know what skeletons I have in my cupboard, and I have a lot. And he has a lot. and you have a lot more than us combined." But you confess, you repent that I do not want to be blind anymore, that this sin of envy in my heart has to stop. This sin of insecurity in me has to stop. This sin of endless worry in me has to end. This sin of whatever is that sin, may this Lent, may this Good Friday and Easter be the ultimate turning point for you and me. The Lord bless us and keep us only if we humbly listen to the Gospel and humbly listen to His Son and bow the knee and experience new life. Or else we would be the recipients of Jesus's, of God's wrath rightly through Christ. I'm going to stand and pray together. Many things make us cry in life. And usually it has to do with the loss of something or someone that is so precious to us. But we understand clearly now what made you cry, Lord Jesus, over Jerusalem. And we pray that the lessons we learned here would not simply be a historical lesson, a theological lesson, for all the fallen people of Israel, May we listen carefully to you, Lord Jesus, that by your grace we would listen to all that you say to us about our spiritual blindness, but our hardness of heart, and how all that is storing up the wrath of God. And we pray that in listening to you, Heavenly Father, by listening to your Son, that in the confessing and repenting and the yielding to Jesus, our lives will be lived to your glory because we accept Jesus as our Saviour and our Lord. Accept us, O Lord, make us new. And we pray this, now and forevermore. Amen.